You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, which you can order online from a local retailer by visiting bookshop.org, as well as Moxie LaBouche voiceovers, offering a 50% discount to my listeners. You can email me moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. Roast Without Equal For this recipe, you will need one each, skylark, thrush, quail, ortolan, lapwing, golden plover, partridge, woodcock, teal, guinea hen, guinea fowl, wild duck, red pheasant, wild goose, bustard, and fig pecker. Pluck and gut the birds, then stuff the smallest bird into the next smallest bird's cavity, and so on, until you have one neutron star of bird meat paraphrased from a 17th century cookbook. And you thought turducken was a new thing? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two days after this episode drops, it is Thanksgiving in the United States, and the supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts voted to go turkey talk today. So let's go through the myths and misconceptions by working our way through a painting. An odd choice, as this is an audio-only medium, certainly. Luckily, we don't have to pick just one painting. Most paintings depicting the first Thanksgiving, in giant air quotes, of 1621 contain the same things. A group of Puritan settlers dressed in austere black clothing with bright metal buckles, gathered around a table laden with food. Maybe the family patriarch is offering a prayer. And a small group of Native Americans can be seen in the background, maybe one or two in the foreground. If I were to show you Jenny Augusta Brownscombe's The First Thanksgiving, or The First Thanksgiving by Jean-Louise Jerome Ferris, painted within a year of each other in the early 20th century, coincidentally, you'd say, oh yeah, that was in my history book. Which year? All of them, probably. That's how we've been taught to think of historical Thanksgivings. But we're not school kids anymore, so it's time to update that image. Paintings of the first Thanksgiving refer to that feast in 1621 in Plymouth, Massachusetts. What we actually know about the feast, concretely, is very limited. It mostly comes from a single letter written by a colonist named Edward Winslow. 220 years later, in 1841, his letter was published in Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers by Boston writer and publisher Alexander Young. And it was Young who called the gathering the first Thanksgiving, even though the word Thanksgiving doesn't appear anywhere in Winslow's letter. That feast wouldn't have been Thanksgiving to the pilgrims. Puritans did observe Thanksgiving days, after fortunate events like a good harvest. But these were religious observances. People spent the day in church, often in silent prayer, and they fasted rather than feasted. 
It's almost the polar opposite of the way we celebrate Thanksgiving today. So that day wasn't Thanksgiving, and it wasn't even the first, for a few reasons. For starters, it didn't happen a second time, let alone annually, so it can hardly be said to be the first of anything. It would take more than 200 years for an autumn feast referred to as Thanksgiving to widely proliferate. Second, it wasn't the first meal shared by Europeans and Native Americans in the New World. A reasonable drive from my home here in Virginia is the Berkeley Plantation, where a Thanksgiving feast was held, this one by the Europeans alone. Three dozen settlers arrived in the Chesapeake Bay in 1619 on a ship captained by a man who had survived the winter of 1609 in the Jamestown colony, a winter referred to as the Starving Time. After a rough two and a half months at sea and another week on inland waterways, they finally arrived at Berkeley Hundred, later called Berkeley Plantation, on December 4th. They disembarked, assembled a meal from what ship's rations they still had, ham and oysters probably, and said prayers of thanksgiving. It was declared that their arrival must be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. And so it was, for two whole years. In March of 1622, the Powhatan, having noticed that the settlers weren't leaving, and in fact were expanding their territory and kept trying to convert and civilize them, attacked Berkeley and other settlements, killing over 300. Uh, Fair play to you, boys. If you ask historians in Maine, they'll tell you the first such meal happened not in 1621 in Massachusetts, but in 1607 in Popham, Maine. The Popham colony barely lasted a year, thanks to a fire in their storehouse during the particularly harsh winter, and miscalculations like staying in a fort right on the shore rather than moving inland where the forest could provide a windbreak. They arrived in the summer, shared a meal with the locals that October, and called it quits the following spring. Don't tell the Mainers, though, but they may have been beaten to firsties by 50 years, by Florida of all places. In September 1565, 800 Spanish colonists, under captain and priest Father Francisco Lopez, disembarked on what they would dub St. Augustine, and gathered around a makeshift altar for a Thanksgiving Mass all the while being watched by the local Timucua tribe. The Spanish invited the Timucuans to join them for a meal. It was the first community act of religion and thanksgiving in the first permanent settlement in the land, wrote University of Florida Professor Emeritus of History Michael Gannon in his book, The Cross in the Sand. As would happen at Berkeley Hundred, the feast was mostly leftovers from the ship. But isn't leftovers what the Thanksgiving meal is really about? Some historians argue that while America's first Thanksgiving indeed did take place in Florida, it was actually 40 miles north and one year earlier, when French Huguenots held a Thanksgiving Mass and feasted with the Timucuans to celebrate the June 1564 establishment of Fort Caroline in present-day Jacksonville. And then there's Texas, which claims to have had the first New World Thanksgiving way back in 1541, when Thanksgiving Mass was held for 1,500 conquistadors under Coronado. I feel kind of like Linda Richmond from Saturday Night Live, 
The first Thanksgiving was neither first nor Thanksgiving. Discuss. Ever wonder how the Europeans were able to communicate with the Native Americans effectively enough to invite them to dinner and not sit in an awkward silence? In March 1621, an Abenaki man who history records as Samoset made first contact with the pilgrims by walking right up to them and asking, in English, if they had any beer. He had learned English from fishermen who frequented the waters of Maine, but it was limited. A week later, he approached the settlement again with someone who could parlay better, someone you may have heard of, Squanto, the last surviving member of the Patuxet. Squanto had had a lot of exposure to Europeans. Like, a lot, a lot. He'd been kidnapped by a British ship in 1605, lived in England for nine years, returned to North America, then a different British ship kidnapped him and tried to sell him into slavery in Spain. Some Spanish friars rescued him, and he made his way back to London, took a ship that landed in Newfoundland, where he was dismayed to discover it was too long a walk from home, so he went back to England, where he signed up for an exploration to New England, and went back across the Atlantic for an unbelievable sixth time, at which point he was fluent in English and familiar with European customs. If you're all about gathering virtually this year, which I sincerely, sincerely hope you are, you can also hang out with some like-minded folks who promise not to talk politics on our two group pages, facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Breakroom, or over on Reddit at r slash your brain on facts. Post anything you find online that you like. It doesn't have to be strictly educational. It can just be for fun. Pop on in and say hello to your fellow Brainiacs. And if you need to find the perfect gift for a fellow Brainiac, good news, I've got a tea Public store. You can get there by going to bit.ly slash ybofmerch. There you can get a phone case with the Brain logo, a coffee mug that says, It is better, of course, to know useless things than to know nothing. Or, my personal favorite, I'm very proud of this, a t-shirt with what looks like a name badge says, hello, my name is. But at the bottom, I added, and this is your brain on facts. So feel free to sharpie your own name in and pretend to be the host of the show. bit.ly slash merch. Back to the paintings, though. They're also set too late in the fall. We celebrate Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday of November, but that is way too late for a harvest festival. The meal probably took place in late September, and was a tradition the colonists brought with them. Harvest celebration feasts are not unique. Many native tribes celebrated the end of the growing season, as did people back in jolly old England and all across Europe, and had for as long as mankind's survival had been dependent on the cycle of the seasons. In England and Ireland, the festival became known as Harvest Home. Whoever cut the last sheaf of grain was known as the Lord of the Harvest. In some parts of England, a harvest queen was chosen. The village church would be decorated with autumn flowers and vegetables, and a loaf of bread made from the newly harvested wheat was placed on the altar, and people came to the church to give thanks to God for the harvest. Once all the grain was put up, it was time to feast. Traditional foods included roast beef and ale accompanied by autumn vegetables. That last sheaf of grain was displayed prominently, 
and at the dance that followed, the girl who tied the last sheaf was the first to dance with the farmer on whose land it was, or his eldest son. So the pilgrims already had harvest festival traditions. I should probably take a minute here to clear up your imagining of pilgrims. Pilgrim just means a person who journeys to a sacred place for religious reasons. But when you say it in America, we think of the early Puritan settlers. Puritans being members of a religious reform movement that arose within the Church of England in the late 16th century, who believed that the Church of England was too similar to the Roman Catholic Church and should eliminate any ceremonies and practices not expressly listed in the Bible, which includes things like celebrating Christmas. We're taught that they left England to escape religious persecution. Except, by the time they sailed for America, they had already done that. They'd emigrated from England to Holland, where they had all the religious freedom they could ask for. But they couldn't get a foothold financially. Some were also worried about assimilating into Dutch culture, so off across the ocean they went. According to James Lowen, sociologist and author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, they were also coming here in order to establish a religious theocracy, which they did. That's not exactly the same as coming here for religious freedom. It's kind of coming here against religious freedom. Also, the pilgrims never called themselves pilgrims. They were separatists. The term pilgrims wasn't applied to them until around 1880. And as for the austere black clothing with metal buckles on the shoes, which makes sense, and on the hat, which makes no sense whatsoever, that is as much from an artist's imagination as horns on a Viking helmet. Black and gray were reserved for Sunday, and since the feast wasn't a religious observance, they would have just worn their regular clothes, which came in every color they had dye for. Leather was also preferred for closing shoes and cinching waists, because it is much, much cheaper. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We also need to set aside the cute story that the Plymouth colonists invited the local Wampanoag to dine with them in thanks for helping with their farming. The Wampanoag just showed up. And not the three or four you see in the paintings. Winslow's letter says that there were many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted. Only about fifty colonists were still alive at that point, so there would have been twice as many Wampanoag as there were Brits. Well, if the Wampanoag didn't teach the settlers to farm, they at least introduced them to Turkey. Wrong again. Europeans knew all about turkeys. Spanish explorers brought domesticated turkeys back from the New World in the previous century, and turkeys were appearing on English menus no later than 1550. Turkey may or may not have been on the Plymouth table, but if it was, it wasn't the centerpiece. Winslow wrote home to a friend, Our harvest being gotten in, 
our governors sent four men on fowling, that so we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help besides, served the company almost a week. Let's pause for a moment here and talk turkey. I'll show myself out. We know more false things about turkeys than we do real things. Like if they're outside and it rains, they'll stare up into the sky with their beaks open and drown. Or Ben Franklin's campaign to make the turkey the national bird of the fledgling, no pun intended, country. Franklin liked turkeys, but we only have evidence of him making one mention of it, far below the standard of evidence for a flat-out campaign. Two years after the approval of the now-familiar seal with the bald eagle, Franklin wrote in a letter to his daughter that was primarily concerned with a military fraternity Franklin disproved of. For my part, I wish the bald eagle had never been chosen as a representative of our country. Bald eagle is a bird of bad moral character that does not get its living honestly because it steals food from the fishing hawk and is too lazy to fish for himself. Franklin had proposed a different great seal, one depicting Moses at the Red Sea. Turkeys don't all gobble. That trick is reserved almost exclusively for the males. And turkeys can do more than just gobble. Hens make high-pitched yelps, and strutting toms produce a non-vocal thump like a bass drum. Males and females alike sound a choppy series of honks as an alarm when they suspect predators. And contrary to my father's favorite piece of Thanksgiving television, that one episode of WKRP, As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Turkeys can fly. Wild turkeys can easily fly 100 yards, but they don't bother unless they're escaping predation or getting into a tree to roost. The broad-breasted breeds developed for industrial agriculture, however, cannot fly because their strength-to-mass ratio is completely out of whack. In fact, and I want to underline that this next thing is a fact and not a myth, modern farmed turkeys not only cannot fly, they can't mate. The broad-breasted white, the most common commercial breed, is bred to efficiently convert feed to meat at a ratio of 2 to 1, meaning you only have to put two pounds of feed into them for every pound of meat you get. They reach market weight in only 16 weeks, which means that they grow so fast they have difficulty standing and walking because their legs can't keep up with the weight gain. The giant breasts that we so enjoy are much too large to allow a tom to effectively mount a hen. The result of this is that nearly 100% of commercial domestic turkeys are the product of artificial insemination. And guess how it's done? With an aspirator that looks like a tiny siphon for stealing gas, I am told. A worker sucks the semen from the tom turkey with a tube that has a containment vessel in the middle to then deposit into the hens. And one assumes he doesn't draw too hard more than once. But let's move past all of that to the head, feet, feathers, and organs gone stage. You take the wrapper off the bird, and now the big question. To rinse or not to rinse? Grandma might have told you it's necessary to get rid of salmonella, but 
In reality, if your turkey has salmonella, all the rinsing will do is spread it around. An exception to that being if you brine it because you'll need to rinse off all the herbs and flavorants and stuff. I always brine mine, and if you've never spatchcocked or butterflied your turkey, definitely try it. It cooks in much less time, meaning it's less prone to drying out. And right off the bat, get rid of the plastic pop-up thermometer. Even if they behaved reliably, which they don't, they're set to pop at 180 degrees Fahrenheit or 82 degrees Celsius, which would leave you with a giant pile of meat with all the flavor and juice of a stack of paper napkins. And don't go pinning the blame for your food coma on the poor turkey. Yes, turkeys do contain an essential amino acid, L-tryptophan, which the body uses to make serotonin and melatonin, but not, you know, a lot of it. To get enough tryptophan into your system to knock you out before halftime in the Lions game, you'd have to consume a massive dose of pure tryptophan. Why do the Detroit Lions always have a game on Thanksgiving Day anyway? The idea to play on the holiday came from Lions owner George Richards in 1934, who wanted to attract more fans to what was then the second-string team in town. Unlike religion-based holidays, Thanksgiving is an American holiday and was a pretty much guaranteed day off for the industrial workforce that was the lifeblood of the Motor City. Richards owned a radio station that was a major NBC affiliate, and he negotiated a deal with NBC to broadcast the Lions game on Thanksgiving to almost a hundred stations across the country. And thus, a tradition was born. If you nod off during the game, you're more likely sugar crashing from the giant plate of carbs followed by three kinds of pie with whipped cream. And if you're a dark meat fan, good news. While white meat has fewer fat and calories, dark meat offers a greater density of nutrients like iron and B vitamins. This is where I would reinforce or debunk the claim that the terms white meat and dark meat were Victorian euphemisms for breast and thigh. And while I can find a great deal of repetition of this fact, none of it refers to a source. So we'll just have to leave an asterisk on that one. What else was on the table in 1621? The Wampanoag brought in four deer that they'd hunted earlier that day. Venison was a special food back in England, so this gift was a much bigger deal to the recipients than to the givers. William Bradford, the governor Winslow mentions in his letters, described, And besides waterfowl, there was great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison, etc. Besides, they had about a peck a meal a week to a person, or now, since harvest, Indian corn to that proportion. For those who think the presence of Indian corn means popcorn, I am sorry to disabuse you, but no. This myth comes from a specific source, the 1889 novel Standish of Standish by Jane G. Austen with an I, not, you know, Jane Austen with an E. The corn that grew in Plymouth was northern flint corn, which doesn't have the strong kernel needed to hold in the pressure of the moisture turning to steam before finally bursting out into fluffy white popcorn. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, 
Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. One thing I'm thankful for is all the folks who take the time to leave reviews either for the podcast or for the book. Like KKSF, who gave the book five stars and said fun and entertainment. Everyone could use some non-television-related entertainment now, and that's where Moxie and Your Brain on Facts come in. Use your brain and enjoy yourself with her wonderful stories, factoids, and amazing knowledge and trivia. Fun for the whole family without any screen time. Thank you for that, KKSF. The podcast itself got a five-star review from Kelly over on podchaser.com, which is like the IMDB of podcasts. It's a great resource for finding other podcasts your favorite host has been on, as well as reviewing shows if your podcast app doesn't have a review function. Kelly said, What may seem like completely irrelevant facts have actually immensely enhanced my conversations. Somehow I end up using facts from the podcast in my conversations weekly. This is the very first podcast I ever listened to and is pretty much my go-to. I've only ever strayed to listen to guest podcast channels, which are pretty good too, but Moxie is the best. She has the best way of adding humor and not to mention her smooth segues. Love, love, love it. And I love, love, love you, Kelly. And if you'd like to hear your opinions in my voice, leave us a review either for the book or the podcast. I promise to try to read each and every one on the show. None of my research has indicated that there would have been a dish like dressing or stuffing, but nothing explicitly said that there wouldn't have been either. Dressing or stuffing is a good way to use up stale bread, which assumes you're doing well enough at the time to have bread around long enough to go stale. And on the nomenclature, you may subscribe to the idea that moistened croutons cooked inside a bird is stuffing and cooked in a dish is dressing. But it's actually geography that tends to determine which word people use. According to Southern Living Magazine, which tracked which word people used when searching for recipes, dressing is said to be more common in the South, regardless of how it's prepared, 
while stuffing is more common in the north. The Butterball Turkey Company, on the other hand, found the states where people say dressing most often actually sprinkled all across the country. You've probably heard of the Butterball helpline and the hapless crises callers have, like a man who put the still-wrapped frozen turkey into the bathtub with his kids to thaw it, or the woman whose chihuahua got inside the turkey and refused to come out. The turkey talk line is still going strong, even when people could just shout, Hey, magic lady, I didn't want to set yours off, and try to get an answer from their phone or smart speaker. You can also call their competitors, Purdue and Honeysuckle White, or the U.S. Department of Meat and Poultry Hotline. There was even a time in the 1970s when you could call Julia Child for help, not because she was offering it as a service, but because her number was in the phone book, and some people thought, I wonder if it's that Julia Child. We've established there was lots of meat, but no potatoes, mashed, sweet, or otherwise. White potatoes, originating in South America, and sweet potatoes, from the Caribbean, had yet to infiltrate North America. Cranberry sauce might have been there, but it would have been as a tart sauce for the meat, not a side dish whole unto itself. Cranberries need a lot of sugar to be edible, and that was a precious resource. By the way, if you're the kind of person that only likes whole cranberry sauce and likes to dunk on the people who adore the jellied tube slurping out of the can, just let us have it. It's fine. They're both wonderful. But the preciousness of sugar was one of the reasons there were also no dessert pies at the feast. Pies also require flour and butter for the crust, which was in short supply, and, you know, an oven to bake it in, which the Puritans didn't have yet. They did have pumpkins, which were often used like tureens, a big edible pot in which soup could simmer next to the fire. When you go to make your pumpkin pie and you reach for that orange-labeled can, the pie you make may not actually be pumpkin. This is a fact I've been dropping on customers at the grocery store. Yeah, I'm back in retail. And with such good timing, she sarcased. Though I may be oversimplifying it slightly. The Libby's Company makes about 85% of the canned pumpkin puree sold worldwide but they don't use field pumpkins, the ones we like to carve, or sugar pumpkins, the small ones you might grow in your own garden. They use a Dickinson squash, an orange-fleshed squash the size of a good pumpkin, but with paler skin and a more oblong or acorn-like shape. How can they get away with lying to us like that? The FDA allows you to slap the pumpkin label on any golden-fleshed sweet squash or mixture of such squash and field pumpkin. So that would include butternut squash, which is a great substitute for pumpkin in a pinch. Check the freezer case for diced butternut if you don't have time to roast one off. Folks with opinions about this sort of thing disagree on whether the Dickinson squash are pumpkins, with one camp saying they are and the other camp saying they're not, and me off to the side pointing out a pumpkin is a squash anyway. Check your nearest heirloom seed catalog, because Dickinson's aren't proprietary to Libby, and you can grow them yourself. So, if the first Thanksgiving was a one-off, how did it become so deeply entrenched in American life? The dogmatic Puritans of the 17th century evolved into the 18th century's more cosmopolitan Yankees, 
and the emotional importance of a New England family gathered together around a table far outstripped the dwindling religious significance. Westward expansion and the popular press helped spread the New England tradition to the rest of the nation. The Continental Congress proclaimed the first national Thanksgiving in 1777, but that was more like what the Puritan Thanksgiving had been and not what the New England Thanksgiving had become, recommending, quote, that servile labor and such recreations, although at other times innocent, may be unbecoming the purpose of this appointment and should be omitted on so solemn an occasion. So no touch football. Presidents Washington, Adams, and Monroe proclaimed national thanksgivings, but Thomas Jefferson was not a fan. It was entirely too churchy for him, and Jefferson was quite keen on keeping church and state as separate as possible. In a letter to Reverend Samuel Miller in 1808, Jefferson wrote, I consider the government of the United States as interdicted by the Constitution from intermeddling with religious institutions, their doctrines, discipline, or exercises. Certainly no power to prescribe any religious exercise or to assume authority in religious discipline has been delegated to the general government. But it is only proposed that I should recommend not prescribe a day of fasting and prayer. That is, that I should indirectly assume to the United States an authority over religious exercises which the Constitution has directly precluded them from. It then fell to individual states and territories to declare Thanksgiving when and if they chose to, which by the 1850s, almost all of them did. Many people felt that this family holiday should be a national celebration, particularly Sarah Josepha Hale, the influential editor of the popular women's magazine Godey's Ladies' Book and the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb. In 1827, she began to campaign to reinstate the holiday after the model of the first presidents. She publicly petitioned several presidents to make it an annual event. Her efforts finally succeeded in 1863, when she was able to convince President Lincoln that a national Thanksgiving might serve to unite a country torn apart by civil war. The president declared two national Thanksgivings that year, one for August 6th, celebrating the victory at Gettysburg, and a second for the last Thursday in November. Neither Lincoln nor his successors, however, made the holiday a fixed, repeating event. A president still had to proclaim Thanksgiving each year, and the last Thursday in November became the customary date. What Lincoln did do was to pardon a turkey. But it was a Christmas turkey. For my listeners in other countries, and I want to take a second to shout out Eric in England, who I jokingly asked to find some milk vodka and taste it for me, and he only went and did it. So big round of applause for Eric. We have a tradition in which the president pardons a Thanksgiving turkey so it won't be killed and eaten. It's puppy dog news at best, but it's tradition. The turkeys used to live their lives out at the ironically threateningly named Frying Pan Farm Park in Northern Virginia, but from 2005 to 2009, the pardoned turkeys were sent to live at a Disney park, where they were the honorary Grand Marshal of the Disney Thanksgiving Day Parade. In 1863, the Lincoln family received a turkey as a gift, with the intent that it be Christmas dinner. But 10-year-old Tad Lincoln got attached to the turkey, 
which he named Jack. Shortly before Jack's execution, Tad figured out what was going on. He successfully stalled the person tasked with dispatching the bird and ran into a cabinet meeting crying, He's a good turkey and I don't want him killed. Unable to say no, Lincoln pardoned the bird. Many people think the modern turkey pardoning tradition began with Harry S. Truman, who did receive a bird from the National Turkey Federation, but most likely ate it. Though from his administration onward, presidents received turkeys for the holiday. JFK didn't eat his, but it was the press that brought the word pardon into the situation. Nixon sent at least some of his turkeys to petting zoos. Reagan used the word pardon, but only jokingly. It was actually President George H.W. Bush who officially said, Let me assure you and this fine Tom Turkey that he will not end up on anyone's dinner table, not this guy. He's granted a presidential pardon as of right now. So back to the date for Thanksgiving. We have a holiday that could happen whenever, but it's set for the last Thursday in November because that's what the guy before you did. Enter Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In 1939, under pressure from retailers and in an effort to stimulate the economy at the end of the Great Depression, he lengthened the Christmas shopping season by moving Thanksgiving to the second-to-last Thursday in November. The thought behind this was that if the final Thursday coincided with the last day of the month, as it would have in 1939, it cut the holiday shopping season short. People were not happy about it, specifically or in general. People referred to it as Franksgiving. Stores ran ads saying things like, buy your turkey now because who knows when Thanksgiving will be. But it was all sound and fury signifying nothing. Two years later, in 1941, Congress responded by permanently establishing the holiday as the fourth Thursday in the month. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The turducken, a chicken inside a duck inside a turkey which has five times the calories of the turkey alone, is not a new dish. Cooks in the Roman Empire might have made a telescoping dish called a farce, which starts with the smallest rodent and might go all the way up to an ox. The creator of the turducken specifically is up for debate, but many trace its roots to Louisiana-based chef and Dom DeLuise impersonator Paul Prudhomme, who claimed to have invented it. Remember, you can always find the script and the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. And a special thanks to our guest voices. As Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, you heard John and Rojan from the Old Nerds Drinking Podcast that you should definitely check out. And in the role of Tad Lincoln, an aspiring little voice actor named Patrick. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.